Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Inside the Lab. This is a recording of the educational course, KI69 as a prognostic and predictive biomarker in HER positive slash HER2 negative early breast cancer. You can receive CME and CMLE for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. And as always, be sure to tell your colleagues about Inside the Lab and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to ASAP and CCO's Key 67 is a prognostic and predictive biomarker in HR positive, HER2 negative, early breast cancer video conference. My name is Dara Oaken and I'm a learning experience designer at ASAP and I will be facilitating today's session. Copy of the disclosures can be seen on the screen. This educational initiative is provided by the American Society of Clinical Pathology in partnership with Clinical Care Options, LLC. And in addition, this activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. So as you continue to introduce yourselves, let's introduce our speakers. Dr. Bahave is Assistant Professor in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Emory University School of Medicine. And Dr. Badve is Vice Chair of Pathology Cancer Programs in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine also. So we will first hear from Dr. Bahave, who will share her experience in the clinical overview of CDK4-6 inhibitors for treatment of breast cancer. And following her presentation, Dr. Badve will share his expertise in Key67 with optimal testing methods, challenges with standardization, and interpreting findings. Then Dr. Bahave will apply clinical and testing overviews to a case, followed by brief question and answer session as time allows. Please feel free to type in questions into the chat or Q&A functionality at any point, and we will address them after the presentation. So now I'll turn it over to the speakers to share their slides and begin. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, we'll begin today's talk with a clinical overview of CDK4-6 inhibitors for the treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancers, and more recently, the first approval of a CDK4-6 inhibitor abemaciclib and companion diagnostic test for Key67 for the treatment of early stage hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Here are my disclosures. Hormonally driven breast cancers account for approximately 70% of breast cancers, and this percentage is actually higher in older women. Hormonally driven breast cancers tend to be more indolent and caught at early stages compared to triple negative breast cancers, and therefore have very high cure rates with continued improvement in overall survival in patients particularly with early stage hormonally driven breast cancer over the last five years. We've made significant advances in the use of genomic assays and other biomarkers such as Key67 to help guide therapeutic decision-making, especially with regards to de-escalation of chemotherapy, and now the use of adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors for early stage breast cancer. Early stage hormonally driven breast cancers are usually managed by a multidisciplinary team because treatment often includes surgical resection, radiotherapy, and systemic therapy, which is namely adjuvant endocrine therapy, but may also include chemotherapy, 
and now an adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor if indicated. Stage four breast cancers are generally managed by medical oncologists and really focus on systemic therapies, including endocrine therapy as a primary backbone for hormonally driven breast cancers, along with targeted therapies such as CDK4-6 inhibitors and chemotherapy later on in disease. So here's just a timeline of some of the advances we've made, particularly with regards to endocrine therapy for breast cancer. And as we can see here, the estrogen receptor was actually first identified in 1977, followed quickly after that by the discovery of tamoxifen as a blocker of the estrogen receptor, aromatase inhibitors in 1999, and more recently, CDK4-6 inhibitors in combination with endocrine therapy in 2015, which has significantly improved our survivor rates in, in patients with hormonally driven breast cancers. We'll now focus on the CDK4-6 inhibitors in both the metastatic setting and more recently, as I mentioned, in the early stage adjuvant setting for hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancers. As a brief overview of the CDK4-6 pathway, D-type cyclins activate the CDK4 and 6 pathways, which allow for progression from the G1 to S phase in the cell cycle. Estrogen actually stimulates cyclin D1 in hormonally driven breast cancers, therefore leading to enhanced cell proliferation. Some early preclinical studies showed that short-term inhibition of the CDK4 and 6 pathway led to cell cycle arrest in the G1 phase, though this was short-lived upon withdrawal of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. This then led to the discovery that if we actually continuously inhibit the CDK4-6 pathway, this led to prolonged cell cycle arrest with initiation then of apoptosis or cell senescence. Targeting the CDK4-6 pathways is therefore an effective strategy for the treatment of estrogen-driven breast cancers and has really helped us make leaps and bounds in terms of the survival for our patients. Beginning in 2015, there are now actually three approved CDK4-6 inhibitors for the treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer, beginning with palbocyclib in 2015, followed by ribocyclib and abemocyclib in 2017. So palbocyclib and ribocyclib are similar in dosing schedules and are given 21 days on, followed by seven days off, while abemocyclib is given on a continuous dosing schedule twice daily. The dosing and administration considerations are listed in this slide, uh, but really due to the interest of time and the topic that we're discussing today, we'll move on to some of the pivotal clinical trials that actually led to the approvals of these CDK4-6 inhibitors in the metastatic setting and then now the early stage setting. So here's a summary table of three of the pivotal trials leading to the approvals of palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib for the first-line treatment of metastatic, hormonally-driven HER2-negative breast cancers in combination with aromatase inhibitors. As you can see, Paloma 2, Mona Lisa 2, and Monarch 3 all resulted in significantly higher objective response rates compared to endocrine therapy alone, with near doubling of the progression-free survival with the addition of these CDK4-6 inhibitors. This improvement in progression-free survival was seen really across all three CDK4-6 inhibitors, with all three used fairly interchangeably clinically for the treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer. All three CDK4-6 inhibitors also showed significant benefit in patients who had progressed on first-line endocrine therapy. In these trials, Paloma 3, Monarch 2, and Mona Lisa 3, um, they use a combination of a CDK4-6 inhibitor along with fulvestrant, which is a selective estrogen receptor degrader, versus fulvestrant alone. Monarch-1 evaluated the activity of a single-agent um, CDK4-6 inhibitor, abemocyclib, in heavily pretreated patients with metastatic hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. 
Similar to what we saw in the first-line setting, the addition of all three CDK4-6 inhibitors to fulvestrin significantly improved objective response rates and progression-free survival, somewhere in the order of five to eight months. We also saw that there was an overall survival benefit with ribocyclib and abemocyclib. The safety profiles of palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib are listed on this slide, with one of the most common adverse events being neutropenia for all three CDK4-6 inhibitors, followed by potentially liver abnormalities or, in rare cases, prolonged QT for ribocyclib and diarrhea with abemocyclib. In the interest of time, we'll skip this slide as well, but I've listed the monitoring requirements for each of these CDK4-6 inhibitors, both in the metastatic setting and now with the bemocyclid in the early stage setting. So with that, we'll move on to clinical trials evaluating the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in the early stage setting. So here's an overview slide of the multi-center randomized phase three trials investigating the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in early stage hormonally driven HER2 negative breast cancer. The first two trials, PALIS and Penelope B, evaluated the use of palbocyclib with endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting with different schedules in terms of the length of palbocyclib given. Monarch E evaluated abemocyclib with endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting. And Natalie, which, which recently closed to accrual, is evaluating the efficacy of ribocyclib plus endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting. At this time, Monarch E with abemocyclib is the only positive trial in the adjuvant setting that showed a statistically significant improvement in three-year relapse-free survival of 88.8% versus 83.4% with the use of abemocyclib for two years, along with endocrine therapy for five to 10 years. It's unclear why the outcomes are different for each of these drugs since they show fairly equal benefit in the metastatic setting. It may be due to variations in the patient population with Monarch E and Natalie enrolling higher-risk patients or it may be due to the, the different dosing um, administrations continuous versus 21 day and seven days off, or even the length of treatment with some of these CDK4-6 inhibitors used for 13 months compared to three years with um, ribocyclib. I'd like to now focus very quickly on uh, Monarchy evaluating a bemocyclib plus endocrine therapy for patients with high risk early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer and present the updates after 20 month, 27 months of follow-up. So in Monarch E, 5,600 patients with hormonally driven HER2 negative early stage breast cancers at high risk of recurrence were randomized to standard of care endocrine therapy for five to 10 years with or without abemocyclib. These patients were separated out into two different cohorts. High risk for re of recurrence was defined as four or more axillary lymph nodes or one to three lymph nodes plus tumor size greater than or equal to five centimeters or grade three disease in cohort one or one to three lymph nodes and key 67 greater than or equal to 20% confirmed by central testing in cohort two. These patients were then randomized to receive abemocyclib for two years plus standard of care endocrine therapy for five to 10 years versus the standard of care endocrine therapy alone. And the primary endpoint is invasive disease-free survival and the intention to treat population with key secondary endpoints being the IDFS in the key 67 high subgroup um, defined as greater than or equal to 20%, distance recurrent free survival, overall survival, safety, patient reported outcomes and PKs, and we won't go through all of those. So here are the baseline characteristics of patients enrolled on Monarchy. And as you can see, they're very similar in terms of the stage of patients enrolled, prior treatments received, and whether they were pre or postmenopausal between the two treatment arms. With 27 months median follow-up and 90% of patients having completed or discontinued two years of treatment of the treatment period, 
The IDFS and just in recurrence-free survival, survival improved with the addition of the bemocyclib to endocrine therapy. IDFS was 88.8% with the bemocyclib versus 83.4% with endocrine therapy alone, while the distant recurrence-free survival was 90% with the bemocyclib versus 86% with endocrine therapy alone. These findings refle reflect absolute improvements of approximately 5% and 4% respectively as seen in this Kaplan-Meier curve with the addition of a bemocyclib to endocrine therapy. The benefit was even greater in patients with a high key, key 67, which ultimately led to the FDA approval. With the solid lines below on the bottom of the Kaplan-Meier curve reflecting patients in cohort one with a high key 67. As you can see, the overall IDFS was poorer in patients with high um, key 67, though there was a statistically significant improvement in three-year IDFS um, in this higher risk group with the addition of a bemocyclib for two years, along with endocrine therapy, with a three-year IDFS of 86% with a bemocyclib versus 79% with endocrine therapy alone. So from based off of this study, key 67 index appears to be a good prognostic indicator of disease recurrence, though a bemocyclib benefit was actually observed regardless of uh, key 67 index. The data for cohort two is still maturing. So based on this data, the FDA approved a bemocyclib with endocrine therapy, either tamoxifen or, or an aromatase inhibitor in October of 2021 for the adjuvant treatment of patients with high risk, early stage, node positive, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, who had a high risk of recurrence and a key 67 or greater than or equal to 20% based off of an FDA approved companion diagnostic test. Dr. Badve will be discussing this in more detail shortly. Based on the Monarchy trial, Key67 has now really become an integral prognostic tool for early stage breast cancer and a tool to help guide adjuvant treatment decision making in these high risk patients. With that, I'll pass it over to Dr. Bave to discuss Key67 in more detail. So I'll take off where uh, Manali has stopped. Uh, and clearly, we have data now to say that key 67 is a very important marker in breast cancer. The good part and bad part of key 67 is that this is a marker that has been around for more than 20, 30 years. And so we have loved to look for it. And we have also come to hate it because there's a lot of data around it. And so let's look at what's going on with key 67. Please note the term is key 67, not KI 67, because key is an acronym for, uh, sorry, is a short form for Kiel University, Germany, where the antibody was first identified. So what are the issues that we need to talk about? Uh, first of all, Let's talk about the international key 67 working group recommendations. So more than 10 years ago, uh, a bunch of pathologists and clinicians looked at key 67 as a prognostic marker and identified a number of issues that were associated with it. And we'll go into details about that. We'll talk a little bit about pre-analytic uh, variables associated with uh, key 67 challenges in adopting standardized methodologies, best practices, and optimal reporting. So let's start at the beginning. This was the data that caused a lot of issues for everybody. So what do you see in this data? In the phase one part of it, the same cases were given to 20 different labs. And basically, what we saw is a wide variation between labs in terms of scoring of key 67. 
clearly if you use the 10% cutoff, the dotted red line or the 20% cutoff, you still see a fair degree of variability. So the question then comes up is what is the cause of this variability and can we reduce the variability? So the P67 working international working group has worked on this for a number of years. And the basic conclusions is most reagents are good, but the major problem is the pathologist. And why is the pathologist the major problem? The reason is we really don't know at what level should we call something positive. How much staining of the nucleus should be there for a cell to be called positive? Is any dot of brown equivalent to something positive or not? What are the methods for analysis? Clearly, there is the global method and the hotspot method, and different places use different uh, methodologies. And then most importantly, we need to be much more meticulous in our analysis because uh, there are varying intensities of staining, and these all matter. So we clearly talk about the different kits and reagents, the different definitions of pathologies uh, used between groups or between individuals, different methods of analysis, and different cutoff. So here's a classic example or exercise that we did. A bunch of us pathologists looked at cases and scored key 67. And what we did in these particular cases, uh, these were TMA cases from the British Columbia group. And what was done was very simple. If you were calling a cell negative for key 67, you did a ref kit, and that click resulted in a green circle. Well, if you called it positive, it resulted in a red uh, square. And as you can see, not all people are calling the same cells positive and negative. So this was the first indication as to where the problems arise, that there's a lack of consistency or our understanding of consistency uh, in what is the basic requirement for a cell to be considered positive. Anything that is three plus is very easy, but what is the lowest denominator or the lowest level of expression that is required to call something positive? And the recommendations made by uh, this group, and again, this is a wonderful paper written by Torsten Nielsen. Uh, I'm proud to be a co-author on, but uh, telling you exactly the different steps that the International Key 67 Working Group took in trying to understand the variability and how one should go further in trying to get consistency between pathologies. And the current FarmDX assays that is we are going to talk about derives a significant number of parameters based on the recommendations of the Key67 working group. Uh, there are a number of pre-analytic variables that, as we all know, uh, th that need to be uh, looked at. And again, uh, I don't know whether you're seeing a full screen or you're seeing that little uh, blurb at the top. But either way, this is again from the uh, Key67 paper of from Tolson Nielsen from JNCI 2021. And what you can see is that a number of parameters can affect the level of Key67 staining. Uh, this is in very brief uh, the recommended method, which includes a website where you could do a calibration exercise. You can use a number of online tools. And basically, the recommendation is to look at the slides uh, carefully 
count at least 100 nuclei uh, in different areas, that is in areas with negligible, low, medium and high key 67 levels, and then put a weighted global score. As far as cutoffs, there's a lot of literature uh, that has been uh, used uh, in cutoffs. Basically, this is the most uh, famous paper of it all by Maggie Chiang's group from, again, from British Columbia, which basically resulted in an identification of 13.25 as the best possible cutoff for calling something luminal A versus luminal B. Uh, and this resulted in the Sengalen acceptance of the 20% cutoff and more recently, the cutoff that is used in the farm DX assay. Again, the Key 67 Working Group has done a lot of work in deciding about global counting versus hotspot counting and found that global counting methods are by and large superior in terms of giving consistent results uh, across multiple labs and multiple pathologists, including intra-observer variability. So with that background, let's talk very briefly about the FarmDX assay for, that is used in the Monarch E trial for development of the cutoff of K67, which was validated in that clinical trial. So whenever we talk about a FarmDX assay, we are talking about an assay, not just a reagent. That is, we are talking about the instrumentation, the antibody, the detection kit, and the scoring method. All together results in a good result uh, that should be used for patient treatment. Today, we'll just focus on the scoring part of it and talk a little bit about the intensity of scoring and figure out what are the levels of staining that are considered positive. One of the important differences between the FarmDX scoring method and the international key 67 scoring method is the differentiation between the zero and one level. In the international key 67 method, uh, gray cells, as well as cells that are showing very focal positivity uh, can be considered positive. While in the FarmDX method, you need to have a more generalized staining of the nucleus to be called positive. So these are the kind of criteria that are required to call a nucleus positive. As I showed you before, the intensity can be from 1 plus to 3 plus. For calling something positive, the signal must be unequivocally brown. It should be in the nucleus, must cover chromatin distribution within the nucleus. And this is where there's some differences with the international key 67 group, as I already mentioned. The staining should uh, be corresponding not to non-apoptotic cells. And of course, we don't want to count stromal cells or other non tumor cells. So here are some classic examples. The red arrows here point to one plus staining. In this particular case, we have two plus intensity of staining and then three plus intensity of staining. Note, however, that in any given case, you may have multiple intensities of staining as shown in this particular slide, where you have one plus, two plus, and three plus stainings uh, as indicated by red, yellow, and green arrows. Clearly, no one is going to doubt that this is more than 20% in terms of staining. That is more than one cell out of five is positive. 
cases where there are weakly positive cells have become much more problematic. And here are some examples with the red arrow of weakly staining cells, uh, along with cells that are gray and should not be considered positive. And this is, again, something different between the E67 Working Group Committee as well as uh, the farm DX assay. So the steps that one should use uh, to determine the Key67 score are A, confirm the diagnosis of invasive cancer. Two, 200 viable cells. Note that the International Key67 Working Committee suggested 100 cells in three, four different areas, while here they're talking about 200 cells across the whole tumor. Look at the low magnification uh, at the well-preserved areas, Look at the tumor. Keep in mind that one plus nuclear staining is difficult to see. And then at higher magnification, count a large number of uh, different areas and develop a global score for the tumor rather than focusing on a single hotspot area. So what is inclusions and exclusions for PharmDX? What is it? Any convincing nuclear membrane staining in the tumor cells so the nuclear staining in the tumor cells that is greater than 1% intensity or greater than equal to 1% intensity is included. Any nuclear staining of lymphocytes, stromal cells, and other inflammatory cells is excluded. In-situ tumor is excluded. Non-neoplastic breast epithelium and necrosis or apoptotic areas are excluded. And of course, edge effects and processing artifacts need to be excluded. So I'll hand it back to Manali. So while we are going there, I see a question about global counting is superior to hotspot. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that has been an experience not only of the International Working Committee, but also by many other groups across the world. Manali, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Badve. So here is just a clinical case that ties in where we consider utilizing the key, the key 67 and clinically um, how that helps us make a determination on adjuvant treatment. So this is a patient that I did see in clinic and um, I thought was a helpful case for this scenario. 62-year-old postmenopausal female found to have a left breast abnormality on her screening mammogram. Follow-up diagnostic mammogram showed pleomorphic calcifications in the upper outer quadrant of the left breast with subsequent ultrasound showing an irregular hypoechoic solid mass measuring about 35 millimeters, corresponding to the abnormality seen on the screening mammogram. Left axillary ultrasound also showed one abnormal appearing lymph node with cortical th thickening, suspicious for involvement of malignancy. A left breast corneal biopsy was performed and showed invasive ductal carcinoma, a grade three, ER 85%, PR 40%, HER2 one plus, and key 67 of 30% on the core. Left axillary lymph node biopsy confirmed metastatic mammary carcinoma. Dr. Bhave, did you want to take this slide? Okay. So basically what we have is a tumor with some amount of inflammatory infiltrate around it. And within the tumor, you can basically see a fair number of nuclei are positive. So even at first glance, you know that this is uh, something that is not are close to zero and something that is not 100%. So you need to look at carefully different areas of the tumor and figure out what is the global score of this particular tumor. 
In this case, the score was 30. So the patient underwent a left breast segmental mastectomy with a sentinel lymph node biopsy that showed, again, the invasive ductal carcinoma. It was a histologic grade 3, 43 millimeters in greatest dimension um, on final surgical pathology, and there was lymphovascular invasion. DCIS was also seen, but a very small amount. Margins were all negative. And the left axillary sentinel lymph nodes did show that one of three lymph nodes were positive for metastatic carcinoma, measuring approximately 11 millimeters with no extranodal extension. The Oncotype DX um, score was sent to really help us predict benefit from chemotherapy and returned at 23. She then met with medical oncology to discuss adjuvant systemic therapy. So in this clinical scenario, no adjuvant chemotherapy was, was recommended based off of the um, new data from our expander that looked at women with early stage um, hormonally driven HER2 negative, breast, um, HER2 negative breast cancer with up to three lymph nodes and found that women that were postmenopausal that had an Oncotype DX score of 25 or less did not benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. And so this treatment could be actually omitted. Instead, given her node involvement, key 67 um, of, of 30% and grade three disease, we discussed adjuvant endocrine therapy with an aromatase inhibitor, plus the abemacyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, 150 milligrams twice a day for the two years. And that concludes the case. So that's wonderful because we have a lot of questions coming in in the chat. So... Uh, one of the first important questions that came up is what is the reagents that are being used? Uh, and there is a farm BX kit that is coming out, uh, has come out from uh, the DACO Agilent. So this is in addition to the normal key 67 MIB1 uh, kit that many of you are using in your labs. So uh, clearly a different kit uh, that is labeled PharmDX is used. The original study was done on Omnix. Uh, there is some data to suggest that the Link48, which you use for many of the other uh, ISC techniques, including PDL1 and other ERPR HER2, uh, you get very similar data between the Link48 and the DACO Omnix. So those are the two main questions that I wanted to answer before we started. Uh, then there are additional questions, Dara, uh, you want to put them in uh, or how should we do this? Absolutely. I was thinking either way works. I could read some of the questions that came in the chat. You could go through them one by one. Sure. Okay. And thank you so much, Dr. Bahave and Dr. Badve for phenomenal presentations. So I believe you've addressed the first one. Do you re recommend key 67 and core biopsy and resection tissue, correct? Correct. Uh, okay. So biopsies are opt optimally fixed. And again, uh, inconsistence uh, with uh, the international working group, key 67 working group, core biopsies uh, have been recommended for everything, including key 67 analysis. Wonderful. There's a question from Christina W. for key 67 IHC for deciding on CDK4-6 inhibitor treatment. Do we need to use DACO key 67 antibody? or any FDA-approved key 67 clone? Uh, right now, all the data is based on the DACO farm DX assay. Uh, we don't, uh, we have some data of using the non-Omnix platform from DACO, 
but we really do not have any data whatsoever uh, about use of the Ventana, Leica, or any other instrumentation and antibodies. Uh, this is work in progress that is being carried out, but we don't have the results yet. Wonderful. Another question here is, is your center performing P67 on all cases at the time of biopsy or receptors? Uh, yes, but le let me push this to Manali as to what, as a clinician, they would like us to do, so you can hear the clinical opinion. Yeah. So currently, um, the approval for the CDK46 inhibitor abemacyclib is for node-positive disease. So certainly, in a patient that has early-stage hormonally-driven um, nodal involvement, um, those patients we would recommend the key 67 to help both prognosticate and um, predict benefit from a bemocyclib in the adjuvant setting. Um, here at our institution, uh, we commonly see key 67 as part of the, um, the pathology report on core needle biopsies. Um, uh, however, um, in the event that that was not done, um, we do require that for consideration of the adjuvant abemocyclib. So I'll take the question from my dear friend, David Hicks, who asked about the cohort one versus cohort two. And if every patient is getting benefit from abemaciclib, why use the 20% cutoff? And again, that's a very good question. The answer basically is the degree of benefit in the high key 67 patients is significantly more than the degree of benefit in the low key 67 patients. And that's the reason it was approved in for the high key 67 patients uh, in, based on the degree of benefit. But again, it's a very valid question and it's something that we might hear a lot about uh, as time goes along. Your thoughts, Manali? That's absolutely correct. So um, I in, they have a, in the Nature paper, there's a beautiful Kaplan-Meier curve that shows um, all of the intention to treat population and the IDFS versus those that had in cohort one with the high versus low key 67. And we did see that um, across the board in patients that had high key, key 67, they had a poor IDFS. Um, and that's where we saw the most benefit, as you mentioned, with the use of abemocyclib of close to about five, six percent, six percent versus in patients that were had a low key 67, that benefit was closer to about three and a half to four percent. Um, so, therefore, the FDA recommended we focus um, use of the abemocyclib in the highest of high-risk patients, which is with Key 67 Okay, excellent. Here is another question. There are many questions. We'll try to get to them all. What if the Oncotype DX is higher than 25? Is the QX followed by Pevilaclib or hormonal therapy? So basically, if it is a high-risk patient, oncotype greater than 25, and let's make her postmenopausal, what would be the therapy in addition to chemotherapy? Yeah, so um, so the use of abemocyclib is not at all dependent on the Oncotype DX score. So Oncotype DX was really used for risk stratification for, to, for, to predict benefit from chemotherapy in addition to endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting, but not used to predict abemocyclib benefit. So it's kind of two different questions. So if it's a postmenopausal woman that has um, up to three lymph nodes involved, based off of our expander, we can now use the Oncotype DX score to further predict benefit from chemo. If that woman postmenopausal has a score that's 26 or higher, we would recommend adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to endocrine therapy. 
If they have 20, a score of 25 or less, then the TC or adjuvant chemotherapy of choice would be um, not recommended at, due to similar um, invasive disease-free survival that we saw in postmenopausal women that had an oncotype score of zero to 25, whether or not they received chemotherapy. That same woman, the question of benefit from a bemocyclib is not dependent on the oncotype DX score. That will be solely dependent on the clinical pathologic features and the key 67. So the other questions that come up, and maybe I'll try to summarize a few answers together. One question is, would this be a recommendation of 20% change? Uh, well, we don't know. The, PF, the follow-up period is relatively short at this time, only three years. We do, we do not have, uh, what we have is PFS, that is progression-free survival. The overall survival data is still immature. So over a period of time, things might change. But uh, what we are talking about is the current state of uh, knowledge. And uh, some of this includes what was presented at San Antonio meeting in December. So we'll literally have the, some of the PFS data that is less than one month out uh, in the public domain. So as time goes along, we'll get much more answers. The other questions uh, that are there about metastatic lymph nodes and uh, any thoughts on that? Let me see if I can find that question. Uh, so the question is, would you do key 67 on a metastatic lymph node as opposed to a primary tumor? And the answer basically is no one really knows. Uh, we presume that it is going to be the same. Uh, so as of now, if that's the only thing you have, I would certainly do it. Uh, but again, a lot of unknowns there. Uh, as with any clinical trials, as the longer we go and the more the data becomes mature, we'll get a lot more information. Uh, same applies to FNA cytology, whether that's valuable, not valuable, we don't know. A uh, lot of these questions are still uh, being uh, investigated. And as soon as we get to know the answers, uh, we'll try to get back. There were another questions of about are there computerized algorithms available? Yes, there are. Some of them have been tried. Uh, David Rim's group has done some phenomenal work in this. Uh, and there are a couple of papers uh, that uh, are coming out on that particular front. There are just a plethora of amazing questions here. In the Q&A, is it helpful to do CDK4 IHC for these breast tumors? Manali, you want to take it first and then I'll cover it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as of now, um, there, there's no clear indication that um, that IHC, the expression of CDK4 is um, predictive of response to these CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, as I mentioned in the early metastatic um, uh, trials, we actually saw that there was near doubling of the progression-free survival, irregardless of any biomarkers with the addition of the CDK4-6 inhibitors to endocrine therapy. So as of now, um, not in use, but there are a lot of assays um, that are, are being evaluated, even for CDK7 inhibitors and so forth, to see um, if we could better predict response to these drugs. So the only biomarker to date that we possibly have is good old key 67. Mm -hmm. uh, people have tried CDK4, all the other CDKs, P21, uh, retinoblastoma protein, everything that one can think of and haven't come up with any solution. So the closest solution we have is what we have presented today. Uh, I see a question from Rich Eisen. Uh, hi, Rich, how are you? 
what the question basically about whole slide imaging and quantitative uh, image recognitions algorithm uh, clearly those are valuable uh, it's a lot of work but as those algorithms get better and better and more uh, applicable to clinics those will certainly start playing uh, important role in what we do Great. Another question that came in the Q&A is, what if your biopsy contains less than 200 cells? Do you put a disclaimer for your key 67 assessment? So when they do clinical trials and for FDA regulations and all of those, they have to put a minimal criteria. So for example, in PDL one it was 100 cells. Here we have 200 cells. Uh, what basically they are trying to say is you need to have at least a sufficient amount of tumor to be able to give an answer that is possibly representative of the entirety. So that is the goal. Now, 199 versus 200, is it going to really make a difference? No, but those are kind of questions that we can ask and nobody's ever going to have an answer. So issuing a disclaimer, yes. Uh, Rich, did you want to answer something, uh, talk about something? Yeah, no, just a comment, and then someone asked a question about AI. You know, what, what we've seen, we're bringing in the, the Philips system, and what we've seen from our AI partner, the, their quantitative algorithms um, partnered with a, a tumor recognition tool is very, very precise. So the ability to, uh, for the pulse slide imager with the software, the AI software to recognize tumor from stroma, lymphocytes, et cetera, is really good. And it gives you, I think it will give you a much more precise quantitative analysis of whatever target you're looking at, K67. So I think it's going to be really helpful um, as the whole slide imaging and, and AI tools uh, come to the fore. I, I didn't quite get everything that you said, uh, but the parts that I heard properly, I agree with. So, uh, the, yeah, then there was a question from Ira. Uh, by and large, FDA has always approved uh, antibody and kits together. The, all the companion diagnostic assays uh, are essentially assays, not antibodies, not instruments, not uh, scoring methods. Uh, the companion diagnostic requires all of those being marketed or getting going for FDA approval as a single entity. So uh, that's the reason why the antibody has to be used with the appropriate detection kit and uh, instrument as well as the scoring method. This has been a phenomenal discussion. We have time for one or two more questions. Here's a question that came in the chat. I have a workflow question. Will key 67 staining after confirming ER positive or will it be ordered together with a panel that includes ER, PR, and HER2? We have been doing it along with the panel uh, in order to prevent delay in terms of uh, patient care. Uh, it all depends uh, on what the workflow system within your hospital is, having a discussion with your clinicians as to what they would prefer. Uh, clearly, it may, may be a little bit of abuse of resources, but having it done together would be valuable. I see a question come from Kimberly. Can we cross to validate and house KI67 with PharmDX? Uh, absolutely. Uh, again, the data is not in the public domain. 
uh, as yet. So if, for those of you who want to, uh, who are trigger happy and want to jump on it ASAP, I'm sure at next USCAP, we'll see plenty of presentations, USCAP, CAP, or whatever meeting we talk about. I, sh I shouldn't say whatever. ASCP, CAP, USCAP meetings. Uh, we'll see a lot of data on this. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Badve and Dr. Bahave. Um, unfortunately, we are near the top of the hour, so we are going to need to close. Apologies to anyone whose questions have not been answered live, but it's been wonderful to see the dialogue in the chat. Thank you again to everyone for participating. In the chat, there will be a link to the At a Glance clinical summary resource written by Dr. Badbe, which outlines best practices and recommendations for molecular testing involving Key67. And post-conference, we will have available for download slides for today. They will be available both at ASCP's website and links will be provided to you in a follow-up email. Thank you again to both presenters and all participants. And this concludes today's presentation. 